0: The scientist seeks his answers in the forest of deepening night, where the red autumn leaf dancers turn their rounds in the sunset light. He holds his glass in front of his eyes, like a crucifix of reason, blind to supernatural lies spoken by this reaching season. A voice he won't admit he hears says, Your science won't protect you when God counts the tally of your fears and the devil comes to claim his due.
1: Thank you for joining us for this premiere episode of Neon Jezebel. We'll return to today's thrilling story in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you tired of having to buy a new destination card every time you step inside a teleporter? Do you worry that a flimsy card could send you to the wrong destination, or worse? Well, fear no more, because with Surestamp teleportation punch cards, you can rest safe knowing that you're using the most reliable destination cards on the market. And they're reusable, too. You may not think about how much time goes into producing a high-quality punch card, but the folks at Showstamp make it their business to think about that and nothing else. The durable card stock can be read by a machine up to 50 times before showing any signs of wear. Showstamp punch cards are not perforated, so there's no concern over hanging chads or partial punches. Showstamp uses machines that cut spaces into their cards, assuring maximum card integrity. So next time you need a new destination card for your commute to work or a trip to see the family, be sure to get a sure stamp teleportation punch card. Card with integrity. And now, back to Neon Jezebel.
0: Study, study, study as you go. Keep the devil off your back, don't give him any slack. Cry Jesus Lord knows how the story goes He'll carry all the load Come Jesus
1: Barnaby home once had hopes of being among the great houses of New York. You could see it in the gabled roof of the second story, rising above land that had been cleared for a lawn or a garden. You could see it in the column-lined veranda beneath a balcony large enough for a few chairs, where the family could take in the sunset and drink sidecars. You could see it in the looping driveway, paved with smooth stones from some distant and functionally exotic quarry. But it was an old hope, a dream that the family had long since awoken from. The wood siding was darkened by years of storms, tearing away the cheap lacquer that no one had bothered to reapply. There was a stray beam of light on the veranda, where part of the balcony had caved in, and no replacement boards were nailed in place. The white stones of the driveway had been scattered to the borders, and young trees crowded in close to the house— "'growing among patches of unkempt grass. "'At the centre of the ring of white stones was the gas pump, "'a single sentinel of modernity, "'red along the sides with a white face, front and back. "'The circular marquee that had once borne some trademark "'had been broken apart and replaced by a wooden disc "'with a large letter B painted on it. "'In front of the house, where the new trees had not been permitted to grow,' Three jalopies sat in indeterminate states of functionality. Three young men in overalls, but not bothering with shirts, were standing about one of the vehicles, looking like they were on their union-mandated cigarette break. When they saw the chandler pulling into the driveway, they abandoned whatever idle occupation they had been about and formed a loose line, arms set in various displays of unwelcome. We had expected this, This was precisely the encounter we had strategized for. Lucian stopped the car next to the gas pump, perhaps to dissuade them from using any firearms they might have, lying about the clutter of tools and spare parts. He got out first, his slightly defrocked dress uniform unbuttoned to reveal the plain white undershirt beneath. Once his door shut, I opened mine. My cane hit the ground first, Then I rose in my crisp and pressed stroller suit, donning my hat as I did. We walked, purposefully but without urgency, to within a hundred feet of the young men. "'Is this the home of Jeremiah Barnaby?' I called. One of the young men spit in reply. We were hoping to have a word with him. Of the three, one was notably shorter, one was stoutly built, and the third was leanly muscled.' The stout one had darker hair, a touch of Italian, I think, in his blood. The other two were proper Anglo-Saxons, and bore the long jawlines and deeply set eyes one sees in certain members of European royalty. We expectin' guests? The stout one asked. Nope, answered the lean one as he grabbed a long ratchet tool and began sauntering towards us. Now, now. I said, raising my cane to point at the young man. Let's not have any trouble. You are trouble, shouted a fourth man. He was moving rather quickly towards us with an axe on his shoulder. We hadn't noticed him before, and the sight of him distracted me for a moment from the incoming of the stout one and the short one. All right, I called, drawing the sword from my cane. Who's first? The lean one came at me with a cleaving strike of his ratchet. His arm was at full extension, maximizing his considerable reach. He expected me to withdraw, letting the momentum carry him into the strike. I swung with the cane in my left hand as I stepped towards him rather than away. I struck his wrist on the inside, and the ratchet dropped from his grasp. He was still moving towards me, and I brought my right fist directly into his nose. He staggered and dropped to the ground. Meanwhile, the short one stabbed at Lucian with a screwdriver. Lucian grabbed the boy by the arm and threw him to the ground before sidestepping a swung wrench from the stout one. He took a hold of the stout one's arm with his right, and wrapped his left arm around the young man's throat. The one with the axe was running for me, weapon held high above his head. From that position, he could easily swing to either side, making avoidance difficult, and I couldn't be sure that my cane could parry such a heavy weapon. So I waited until just before I expected him to begin his downward swing and flicked my cane at his head like an underhand spear. Then I chased it. He startled for a moment, just before it struck him in the face. This halted his charge, and the axe dipped backwards. I plunged in with my sword and stabbed him quickly in the left shoulder. He stepped back and gave me the opportunity to stomp on the end of my fallen cane, sending it spinning upwards where I could grab it. My opponent still had the axe poised above his head. The wound I gave him meant he would swing to his right. Now I did step back, letting the axe graze the air in front of my chest. I brought my cane down as hard as I could on his right arm while thrusting with the sword. He countered by jabbing me in the ribs with the butt of his axe. I was pushed back. He raised the axe again, and I saw that speed was all I had. I came at him with a flurry of overhand blows Forcing him to use the axe as a shield. He stepped back three paces, then I saw him shore up his footing. My next downward strike with the sword caught the axe, and I thrust forward. He whipped his neck back to avoid the point of my blade, then thrust the axe upward and tried to kick me, but I was already retreating. Taking a few extra steps back, I dropped into the on guard position. My opponent raised the axe above his head again. Then, A woman's voice called from the house. That's enough! Neither I nor my opponent were ready to stand down. Then the woman shouted again. Granddaddy says, everyone in the house! This got the one with the axe to let his weapon down. Not dropped, just down. I sheathed my sword and gestured towards the house. After you, I said. He watched me as he passed, keeping a wide berth. Lucian was waiting for me, and the other belligerents were walking up the steps. There, on the veranda, was a girl of perhaps twenty. She wore a thin cotton dress that seemed to have once held some kind of pattern, long lost through many washings. Her blonde hair was tied up in a single, very long braid. Her face was plain lacking the exaggerations of her two Anglo-Saxon cousins. Like good houseguests, Lucian and I followed the family inside. We were ushered into a parlor, where the four boys who had welcomed us took positions in a neat line by the great window, hands folded in front of them like schoolboys at inspection. In front of a side window was a small table with a chair behind it and a stack of divining cards atop it. The woman who had been plying that trade was standing in the center of the room. Her face was deeply lined, and I took her to be the grandmother to the boys. There was a large chair where an equally aged man sat, a blanket across his lap. He regarded the scene about him vaguely, and I didn't expect he would be entirely of sound mind. Lurking in a back corner of the room was another man. He was short and quite skinny. From his hands, I would have put his age at forty, but there was something in his face that gave him a greater youth. In another setting, I might have guessed he had a rigorous toilette to maintain so feminine a countenance. The girl excused herself, and I heard her busying with something in the kitchen. Introductions were made. I gave the name Jackson Edgewater, just in case someone in that room started feeling vengeful later on. The woman introduced herself as Esther Van Dyke. The man in the corner was her son Shem, and the old man in the chair was her brother, and the patriarch of the clan, Jeremiah Barnaby. A door opened, and the girl came into the parlour holding a tray with four glasses of milk. Esther introduced her as Lydia, Shem's daughter, and she ordered the boys to drink the milk. The boys did as they were told, Swallowing the contents of the tall glass in a single long pull. Then they excused themselves with nods towards Lucian and I. They crossed the receiving hall and went into another room opposite. From where I stood, I could see them drape themselves on couches or simply curl up on the floor and slip, seemingly instantly, into sleep. Esther took her seat behind the card table. There were only the two chairs in the room. Thin, pale curtains hung on either side of the great window, facing the yard, and a similar curtain was pulled across a window behind Esther. A china cupboard was against the wall behind Jeremiah's chair beside the door to the kitchen. Apart from that, the room was empty. Lydia seemed to melt into a dark space between the cupboard and the narrow outcropping of wall that separated the parlor from the receiving hall which I think obscured her from the view of everyone else, save Lucian and I. Lucian told them that we were here on business of an automotive nature. Looking for something with real power? Shem sneered, glancing out the window at the chandler. In a manner of speaking, Lucian replied, We hear you do customization. Yeah, Shem said. We make like that Nancy Boy 4 is scared to. Too fast for city folk. Do you know anything about an old milk truck? Lucian continued. Lifted chassis. Big loud motor. Shem just shrugged. What do you think, Jeremiah? Esther asked. Turning to her, I saw that she had laid three cards face up on the table. They appeared to be hand-drawn. Series of hatching lines with odd little flourishes. Nothing I recognized. Jeremiah was briefly roused from his stupor by the sound of his name and turned to Esther. He mumbled for a moment, then said, No milk for me. Arthur needs a full baby. I see. Esther considered her cards, as if they might help decipher the old man's words. It doesn't sound familiar to him, she told us which, frankly, seemed like an understatement. From the state he was in, it was a wonder that his own name was familiar to him. Jeremiah turned to us. "'And hey, you?' he pointed generally in our direction. "'You got them new hands for the corn? "'I told Thursday we need more hands in the cornfield. field.' "'Yeah.' He turned his gaze to the great window. "'We need more hands in the cornfield. field. "'It's gonna be a good crop, good rain." He turned back to us and looked as if we had just walked in. Uh, what do you want? We are looking for a milk truck, I answered. Have your boys worked on one recently? No, my boys. My boys stay here. Ah, whoa, that's yours business. My boys stay here. We need more hands in the cornfield. Good rain this year. Good crop. Send some mix. "'Red-haired bastards love a fight. Yeah. Yeah. Good crop this year.' "'Lydia?' Esther called, and the girl removed herself from the shadows. She did a little curtsy, as if she hadn't been in the room the whole time. "'Your granddaddy's getting confused. Help him, won't you?' Lydia's entire body tensed. She stole a nervous glance at Lucian and I. Not to address us, more to indicate us to the others.' Now, Grand Mary? Yeah, Shem said, stepping out of his corner. The resemblance between he and his daughter was unmistakable now. Do you watch your toe? One of his hands came to rest on his belt. It was the gesture of a man very ready to make a well-practiced removal of said belt. Lydia scurried over to Jeremiah as quickly as she could. This heightened my awareness further, and I caught the sounds of light snoring from behind us. At the same time, I sensed a dimming of the light in the room, as if a cloud were passing outside. At Jeremiah's chair, Lydia gently sat herself in the old man's lap. She wrapped her arms round his neck, a little too stiffly to be loving. Oh, Shem, Jeremiah said, looking right at Lydia. Shem, for his part, stepped back into his darkened corner. Yes, uncle, Lydia said. Jeremiah smiled. How are you day? I'm only just twelve, Lydia answered, and I was having grave doubts about this as a method for clearing up the confusion the old man was under. That's fine, Jeremiah said. That's fine. Then Lydia leaned in and ran her tongue softly over the old man's ear. I nearly stamped my foot, Vivian, but Lucian put a hand subtly out in front of me. "'What's the matter?' Shem asked, grinning wickedly. "'Nothing,' I replied. "'It's just that I wouldn't care to strain your courtesy.' "'Don't mind, Shem,' Esther said. "'That's just his sense of humor.' Looking back at the old woman, who was still doling out cards slowly and deliberately, I noticed that the curtain behind her had darkened. Not that the light outside had dimmed, but the curtain itself had gone a deep red. I cast a quick look at the great window, and those curtains were also now composed of a thicker crimson fabric. Jeremiah asked, What can I do for you? He was looking at us now. I hadn't properly noted what he had been wearing when we entered, but looking at him now, he was dressed in a velvet smoking jacket with black cuffs. I was sure he hadn't been wearing it before. "'We're looking for a milk truck,' Lucian said, taking a step closer. "'It had some alterations, and we thought you might know about it.' "'Oh?' Jeremiah said. "'I do think.' "'Uh, Shem?' he called. Shem stepped from his corner again, now wearing a cocktail suit. I know for certain he hadn't been wearing a jacket when I noted his belt before, and the quality of his shirt had most definitely altered. "'Yes, Uncle?' Shem said. Where's my pipe? It's on the table. Jeremiah looked to his right, and, sure enough, a small table had materialized between him and us. A lacquered pipe sat on a stand with a box of tobacco next to it. Oh, yeah. Jeremiah looked up at us as he took hold of the pipe and began packing it. I apologize. I get confused sometimes. Here, granddaddy. Lydia said, holding a box of matches with one lit. She, too, had been transformed. For starters, she was wearing makeup now, and was clothed in a vividly white frock. Lucian crossed the room to Esther's table and looked down at her cards. He pegged one card with his finger. Moses, he said, then touched another. Bridget. And another. Anne. Ah! Jeremiah chuckled. You here for readin'? reading? Shem moved to Lucian's shoulder, looking as menacing as he could next to a man twice his size. No, Lucian said. We're here about a kidnapping. He turned to Jeremiah, utterly ignoring Shem. Jeremiah crooked a knowing finger at Lucian. You're looking for Jezebel. They didn't bring her here. I won't have her corrupting my boys. Where did they take her? Oh, probably that house of theirs. The old Fairfax place. You know the one. We had potlucks there when you were boy. Thank you, Lucian said. Yes, I added. Most helpful. Lucian crossed back to me. However, he said, sounding apologetic, it has been a while. I've got pen and paper in the car. Could you spare Lydia to draw us a map? Jeremiah glanced at the girl on his lap, as if he had forgotten she was there. Of course, He pat her belly. "'Go on, girl. You can do one of your recitals for me when you get back.' Lydia dutifully removed herself from the chair, while Esther and Shem both stared daggers at us. Esther slid all the cards back into a deck with a single motion. A grunt emanated from the far room as one of the boys rolled over and sat halfway up, glancing around. In that moment... The room returned to its former squalor. Lydia's face was washed, of makeup, at least. The curtains had returned to their thin, pale material. Shem was in a plain shirt and work pants. Jeremiah was wrapped in a scratchy-looking blanket. Thank you for your hospitality, I said, clicking my heels and turning to leave before anyone could think of an excuse to stop us. Lydia shuffled along behind us. What was that? I whispered to Lucian. I'm not completely sure. He answered. But I know why St. Peter sent us here. Yes, I have questions about that. We went to the car, unmolested out by the gas pump. Lucian opened a rear door and began moving some things to make room on one of the seats. When Lydia arrived, she stood, as the boys had done, back straight, hands folded in front of her. Lydia... Lucian asked. How old are you? She glanced at the two of us nervously. I gave her a shrug. I'm 19, she said. That means you're an adult legally, Lucian said. You can come with us. Pardon? She said. I got a strong impression in there that you wouldn't mind leaving. We'll take you with us. There's a place I know. A friend of mine owns it. Women go there for medical advice and such. We've got some business to attend to, but you could stay at the house. There's hot water and a full pantry. She didn't answer, but was clearly considering it. We should hurry, Lucian said, and stepped away from the open door. Lydia nodded, but didn't move. Lucian crossed quickly to the driver's door, leaving the rear door open. He climbed in, and I opened my own door. I had one foot inside when Lydia suddenly made a break for the rear. She leaped in, slammed the door, and Lucian engaged the engine. We spun the car around the loop of the driveway and were passing the gate, just as I saw Shem come running from the house with the four boys trailing him. Lucian was driving hell for leather down that dirt road, kicking up such a cloud I had no idea how far behind the Barnabys might be. As we reached the fork, we saw the man Lucian had called St. Peter. He waved goodbye to us, and Lucian made the sign of the cross before waving back. All right, Vivian, I am dash-tired. I know, I know. But you wanted the whole story. We shall pick it up over breakfast. I can give you all the awful details then. You're sweet. All right. Good night, Vivian. And thank you.
0: Neon Zezebel is written and performed by Zachary Westbrook. Announcements by me, Su Gang Lee. If you like this show, be sure to give us a like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. You can visit our website, neonzezebel.com That's N-E-O-N-J-E-Z-E-B-E-L.com. And find us on Instagram, at Neon Jezebel podcast